Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's story is brought to you by Manscaped. Use code WESTSIDE at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. And the Wicked Library. Learn more at thewickedlibrary.com. The West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Ash and Darcy make their cross-country trip to Gun Cotton, West Virginia. Ash's dreams and delusions are seemingly worsening the closer she gets to her home state, revealing just how conflicted she is about her past. Still, she arrives with Darcy and Gun Cotton in high spirits, determined to make the most of this move. But the house Darcy has purchased for them is the last thing Ash wanted to see. Overwhelmed by a spreading darkness, she falls to the ground. Now, without further ado, Chapter 4 of Scars in Time. The Town. I woke in Darcy's arms, feeling my own shallow, ragged breathing before anything else. I touched her face and apologized, feeling the words but not hearing them. I couldn't hear anything for a long moment. The movement of her lips in those silent seconds was beautiful, mesmerizing. 
Then my consciousness unmoored itself from whatever rock had felled me and I was alive again. And hearing the apologies filling my mouth, though Darcy's lips remained wordless. I'm sorry I didn't stop you, I said to her. She seemed upset. I said it again and then shook my head, pushing myself out of her lap. She was kneeling and scooted herself over to stick with me, playing the doctor now as much as the concerned wife. It's just a house, babe. We can live somewhere else, she said. You don't have to apologize to me about it. What? I asked. I looked up at the house. It was fine, if huge. Blue sky and frost-white hints of clouds shone down through the gray canopy above us. I looked at the path leading to the front porch. There was no statue of a man holding an umbrella, just a stone birdbath somebody had flipped over to make a shape resembling a mushroom. Probably keeps mosquitoes from growing in it, I thought. The rest of the house was fine, and it most certainly wasn't the house in the woods I'd burned down as a teenager. They sort of looked the same, were of the same style, I figured, letting Darcy help me to my feet. She touched my shoulders and looked me over, paying close attention to my eyes, and then brushed me off. I love the house, I said, my voice barely a whisper. I coughed, harder than I expected, and cleared my throat. The nasty, sweet taste of oncoming sickness lingered after I turned and spit. What? Darcy asked. She was looking in the direction of where I'd spat. I realized I might never have done that in front of her in our entire relationship. Or at least it might have been so long neither of us might remember a previous time. I love the house, I repeated, now much more audible. Darcy smiled but looked concerned. She gestured to the large stone patio that stretched side to side along the front of the house and I went to it with her, hand in hand. The only seats were a set of stone benches that were probably the age of the house itself. I was surprised by how exhausted I felt when I sat. I'm glad, Darcy said. I looked at her. Her face was somber, a little worried. I'm glad you liked the house, I mean. I nodded and said nothing for a while. I don't feel very good, I said. I think I'm getting sick. Probably those nasty-ass biscuits, Darcy said, giving me half a smile. I mock glared at her and pointed at her face. I was sweating despite the chill in the air. I could feel my heart beating too, but it was slowing. Slowing. Don't you impugn the honor of Tudor's biscuit world, you damn lesbian, I said, putting on my best, worst, West Virginia accent. I'll have you strung and quartered. She laughed. It's drawn and quartered, but okay, you win. She held her hands up and then leaned against the house. I know you haven't been feeling very good lately, and I know you don't always like asking me for help. She looked into my eyes. But if you need to talk about anything, I'm here, or we can find somebody for you. Shit, I said. We're like an hour from Weston. I could just check in there and have a reunion. It'd be just like going home. I tried to smile, but she was still being serious. I sighed and nodded and kissed her. I'll let you know if 
if things get to where I can't handle them. Okay? Try to tell me just ahead of that point, why don't you? She replied, giving me a concerned look and then pulling my face to hers. The kiss was long and familiar and deep. I lay my head on her shoulder when it was finished and she ran her hand through my hair. The feeling was nice, but I knew that beneath those fingers were woven scars and white hair like netting. All the marks and all the damage beneath healing hands that couldn't cure it. I felt myself being a burden again and pushed the thought away, but I also moved her hand from that place and sat it in my lap. So, are we going inside? I said. She bit her lip and shook her head. Not until, like, tomorrow, she said. I just wanted to show you the place. She patted the stone front of the building, her hand making almost no noise. Behind us, the window was dark with red curtains hung across it. I touched the glass reflexively, feeling its cold under my fingers. We're going to stay in this little hotel downtown, Darcy said, standing and stretching. It must have felt good because she held it for a while. Which one? I asked. The, uh, only little hotel downtown, Darcy clarified. She held out a hand to me and I took it, relying on her more than I wanted to to get to my feet. We'll stay there for a few days while the movers get us, well, moved in. I'm meeting the real estate agent tomorrow and then we'll have the actual keys. I followed her down to the car, giving the place one last look. There was nothing imposing about the house save how damn big it was. But still, I could feel a tugging at my neck. Not the threads of air, but something like a memory of them. I got in the car. One last thing, though, Darcy said. My arrangements with the clinic in town have to get sped up a bit. I nodded. Sped up a lot, actually. She hissed through her teeth. I'm probably going to have to leave the moving guys to you. And most of the getting the house ready for us to live in. Is that okay? Did you just find out about this? I asked. She nodded and showed me her phone. They texted me on the road and I, uh, sort of had an overly long text conversation in the bathroom at Tudor's. She chuckled and I didn't, so she stopped. She sighed. They have sick people in town, and their current setup isn't enough. It's basically just somebody's unlived-in house with some clinic stuff set up in the living room. She gave me a direct, if apologetic, look. I need to get started working, Ash. I nodded. I can handle it, I said, not really knowing if I could. We left the grey-leaved canopy of Old Town and, thankfully, managed to avoid the meandering festival-goers by taking a left up the incline. The incline trolleys worried me a bit. The tracks were set into the roadway, which made it feel like we were driving directly at a train. I soon discovered it was eminently safe, 
things moved at a snail's pace and made stops at every major intersection. There were multiple platforms along the roadside to accommodate new passengers, and I could see a number of people getting on and off all the way to the top of the hill. We took a ride and cut through a common-looking neighborhood of one- and two-story homes. Many of them were new, but not all, and those that weren't seemed to all be in some phase of remodeling. Large construction dumpsters took up the street-side parking spaces every 40 feet or so, most of them brimming with the rotted guts of badly-aged houses. One of these structures had been stripped down to its raw, blackened bones, and being able to see through the ribcage remnants of the place made me shiver. It reminded me of the fire-gutted house we'd left behind in Colorado. The hotel Darcy had arranged for us was small, new, and tucked up near the utmost top of the hill. The place had twelve rooms that I could see and exactly enough parking for that many tenants plus two. We parked in a spot near the office and I followed Darcy inside. I hate talking to people so I let her take the lead, even though the altoid crunching teenage girl working the reception desk was hardly imposing. Hey, she said, setting down her phone, smiling and doing her best to swallow a mouthful of cinnamon Altoid. Welcome to the Gun Cotton Hotel. You're the little tree party? The girl didn't bother waiting for Darcy to confirm. We were probably the only people checking in that day. Maybe even that week. Yes, Darcy said anyway, sort of leaning over the counter to watch the girl go about her business. A few minutes later, we were walking around the side of the hotel and climbing the stairs to get to our room which was fortunately just over top the office. We collapsed on the bed, holding hands for a while and relishing the feel of our backs decompressing on a nice, firm mattress. Darcy didn't linger long in bed. She never did. My wife took a couple minutes to gather herself and then she was scooting around the room to look at this and that. Really, she was checking for bedbugs, which she did everywhere we stayed no matter how nice the hotel was. It was something that had once irritated me to no end because I hate doing anything after a long trip and watching her scuttle around both exhausted me and made me feel guilty. I could never drive, and I knew driving made her tired, but she still went through this routine every time. But, like I said, it only used to irritate me because she actually found bedbugs once in the mattress liner at the Sagat five-star rated bed and breakfast where we'd overnighted in upstate New York before our honeymoon. From then on, as you might expect, I never again interfered with her bed bug hunts. That said, it still made me tired. Holy shit, Darcy said, and I felt myself cringe. This was it, bed bugs. Now we had to burn the only unpacked clothes we had that survived the fire. I shivered from the creepy, crawly feeling of imagined bugs on my legs. Then she pushed aside the floor-to-ceiling curtains at the edge of the room. Holy shit, I repeated. The entirety of the river valley spilled forth outside the windows, which themselves led out onto the small patio where Darcy was standing. I joined her and looked down a 200 or so foot drop straight to the trees at the bottom of the bluffs beneath us. Beyond that, the valley was a grand, rolling sheet of pre-autumn green and gold broken up by brown chunks of cliff face 
and the winding, treeless line of the town's small river. The sun had mostly set, leaving the valley itself to be lit only by the strips of brilliant gold and blue daylight left in the sky. And all that broken here and there by rolls of pink-dusted cloud. Darcy kissed me so suddenly it startled me, and I laughed. The smile lines on her face were deeper than when I had said yes all those years ago, but I could still see the determined, young pre-med student I had met in college. I kissed her back, pooling our bodies together and relishing the shiver that traveled up my spine when she ran her fingers through the sensitive hair over the scars on my head. We made out like teenagers for a while, moving from the porch to the bed, until the brilliant sky had dulled to cobalt and the clouds had become gray shapelessness around a rising moon. In that more subtle light, Darcy didn't look her age, and glancing down I saw even my own body seemed more smooth and well-lined. But despite all these romantic overtones, I couldn't get to where I needed to be to get physical with Darcy. I could tell she wanted that, but somehow it just wasn't there. I just wasn't there, and it didn't help that I felt like I was getting sick. This wasn't uncommon with us, and had grown more common as we both approached 50. It was never some great wall between us like you might see on television. Usually our failed encounters ended with a few sweet, simple kisses and some cuddling. Maybe a late night snack. That night, we opted for drinks in town. We discovered that the locals called the town's main street the Strip, though its real name was something more mundane, Compson Avenue or something similar. The first place we found was a pub called Colby's Gun Cotton Bar and Grill, which we decided was as good a place as any to try and eat. There were more places down the street, but we were starving and saw a few empty seats through the window. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The clientele were, oddly enough, not much different than the folks you'd see around where we'd lived in Boulder. Skinny, effete, bearded, and bespectacled. For sure not what I'd expected, having known the sort that populate these little mountain towns my entire life. I'd anticipated, at least, a few more guys sporting worn-out boots and real tree camouflage baseball hats. More bottle blondes and fewer side cuts. Are we still in Boulder? Darcy asked, reading my mind. I laughed. It sure feels like it, I said, stirring my rum and coke and sneaking looks at this couple or that. It appeared we weren't the only gay people in the bar, which was a nice surprise, but better still was the feeling of not being out of place here. If there's anything I hadn't expected, it was probably feeling safe and anonymous while being out in my home state, which was sad when I thought about it. Darcy didn't say anything about it, but I knew her thinking was fairly aligned with mine. I could see it in her eyes, that softening around the edges you never realize is happening until it's begun. Like a slow exhalation of breath you didn't know you were holding until the moment you understood you might just be safe here. We eavesdropped on the conversations around us and made idle chat about the things we might do with that great, dark house waiting for us beneath those odd gray leaves. Neither of us had much experience with remodeling homes, but Darcy had enough taste I knew she could figure out how to set up our home in a way that suited us. No matter what was finally decided... My own space would be, as always, a dark little nest of clutter surrounding a laptop. Or so I thought then. The crowd thickened instead of dwindling as the hour grew late. Our waitress, a portly but light-footed girl with torn jeans and sunny D-yellow-orange hair, dropped off our check without us asking. Then she let us know she and the rest of the wait staff were going off shift and we'd have to get our drinks at the bar. By around ten, only the tables against the wall remained, and the center of the bar had turned into a smallish dance floor full of clumsy legs and elbows. I stood, stretched, and let Darcy know I was headed for the bathroom. Text if it's terrible there and I'll steal myself for the long walk back to the motel, she said. I pantomimed using the phone I no longer had, and she sighed and nodded. Sorry. Send a runner, then. A message to Darcia, I said, laughing when she didn't get the reference and rolled her eyes at me because she knew there was one. Then I was moving through the crowd, doing my best to predict the currents of human flesh in a way that would keep me on my feet. I'd had four rum and cokes over just as many hours, and, while I wasn't an absolute lightweight, I could feel my head swimming just a touch. The throng of people on the dance floor never seemed to end. I could barely even hear the music, just feel the repetitive bass thrum rolling up and down from the base of my spine to my ears and back. Hands and arms danced over and around me, a sea of chests and belt buckles and stomachs. I could see eyes, too. Not of the people closest to me, but deeper in the crowd just behind the hips and shoulders, glittering in the soft rainbow bar light flickering here and there and then gone, 
I waded out of the crowd as though the far end of the bar was a beach and the last few people between me and the back hallway of the tide. I had to pee, of course. I'd been drinking for hours and hadn't gone yet. But I was more worried about this insistent nausea rising in my gut. It was so subtle I didn't quite notice it until after I'd gotten up from our table. But now I couldn't shake it. It felt like that sour mouthful of spit you get just before a bad bout of heartburn. But at the back of my neck somehow. Almost like I was about to get a dose of acid to the brain. The people at the back of the bar were really only shapes of people, I saw. Shadows in the dirty honey lighting that diffused and warped over the black painted walls. I could feel my shoes slapping against a wet patch on the ground big puddle of something I couldn't really see. The entire hallway seemed wet. I heard a door slamming open ahead of me and the sound of girls' voices. Young women shit-faced and cackling over some shared memory. But I couldn't see whatever door they'd come through. The hallway bent like a snake into the back of the bar, seeming to get darker the whole way. Their voices faded and I figured, hoped, They had just gone out some back door. Hello? A voice called to me. A voice that belonged to an actual girl, a child. I paused and looked back the way I came. A smattering of light and noise from the bar echoed back to me, but the hall was otherwise empty. I pushed on and the girl spoke again. I can... I can hear you. Can you please help? She sounded on the verge of panic. I paused, not really wanting to get involved in anything. Not feeling for certain, whatever impulse it is that makes other people jump at the opportunity to help a child. And wondering, too, if I was about to feel those tendrils of air slipping in around me, tightening as the electric waterfall danced down the interior surface of my skull. But there was nothing. Nothing to let me tell myself, at least, that whatever was happening wasn't real. I found her around the corner, a single eye and a splash of blonde hair leaning out the open door of the ladies' room. The door was set at the very end of the hallway, where any other business would have put a rear emergency exit. The only other things in this last stretch of black hallway were a collection of mops and one of those big, rolling yellow buckets filled to the brim with filthy water. Hello? I asked, probably looking more cautious than the girl. I was still hanging on to my corner, ready to run away at lightning speed for a reason I couldn't quite put my finger on. The girl's cheek was slick with tears. She sniffed and rubbed at her nose. Then she opened the door, holding it ajar with her body. Her small fists were clenched tightly by her thighs. I guessed she was maybe around ten. I thought I heard you, she said. Please, I need help. Nobody else can hear. She was shaking now, her face collapsing along with the little bit of self-control she could muster. Then she was crying, face down and shoulders trembling. I saw that she had balled up the legs of her pink overall shorts in her hands. Please? Okay. I, uh... Okay? I said, looking back one last time before stepping toward the bathroom. The nausea had utterly faded, I noticed, 
Oh, I still had to piss. What's wrong? My mom, the girl said. She couldn't hold back her tears at all now, and I could barely hear her speaking between sobs. She's in... in there. Back there. She sniffed and let go of her shorts, moving her hands up to her eyes and rubbing them ferociously. She stopped talking to me and I can't... I can't open the door. I've been calling for people to help me and there's nobody. Nobody can hear me. Okay, okay, I said. I squatted down beside her and touched her shoulder, not knowing much about children her age, but figuring it couldn't be too different than speaking with a freshman creative writing major. I spoke clearly and made a lot of eye contact. Even in the dim light afforded by the bathroom, I could see the little girl's eyes were deep blue, almost indigo. Where is your mom? I asked. The girl seemed to have calmed completely at my touch. Maybe just passing the weight of responsibility to a grown-up alone was enough. I realized I had never really thought of myself as that, a grown-up. An adult, yes, but I'd never contextualized my adulthood through the lens of a child's eyes. It was an odd, intense sort of responsibility. I didn't much like it. The girl pointed and I followed her finger to the last stall in the bathroom. The place was done up in a style I'd never have chosen for a bar like this or any bar. It looked, in fact, like one of the defunct restrooms in the New York City subway. All ancient green tiles and steel mirrors over four molded ceramic sinks. The stalls looked just as old. Mint green steel partitions and doors fixed to the ground with rusted bolts. At the end of the line of three, I could see a woman's feet laying crooked in red pumps on the floor. Worse still were the unmoving fingers of a single manicured hand resting limp on the tiles between those two feet. There was something else red, fabric with a like, as well. I took a deep breath and turned to the girl. Her eyes were wide. Her fingers scratched nervously at the palm of her right hand. You stay here, I said. Do you have a phone or something? A phone? She said slowly, obviously confused. In a bathroom? Ah, never mind, I said. Just stay by the door and don't look over here, okay? I'm going to check on your mom. Why can't I look? The girl said, her voice rising. I swallowed. Because I said so. I told her, hating myself. In that one phrase, I had truly become a grown-up. Not an adult. Just another knows-better-than-you-older person who doesn't answer questions to keep you safe. The worst part was the way the girl nodded. She didn't care to know. She didn't want to. I tried the stall door gently at first knocking and clearing my throat and asking if there was anything wrong. The girl was still and quiet in the corner, all wide eyes and apprehension. I smiled at her and then pushed at the door. Feeling the full-on weight of the woman against it and hearing the brush of her nails on the tile when her body moved, I glanced at the girl one last time. God only knows how my face looked, and then threw my weight against the door. It didn't work on the first go, But four more tries and my body weight managed to get the door to a point where I could reach inside 
I groped around blindly and found the woman's neck. Then I worked my way down her chest, brushing over the raised cup of a bra before finding the front of her shirt. I twined my fist in it and then fought her up and out of the way of the door. It felt like nothing was going to happen at all. Then something gave and the woman's body was rising along with my slow stumble into the stall. Her body shifted right along with the door, which pushed her legs apart gracelessly, but there was no helping that. I was panting from the effort, feeling every bit my age and my size. Is she okay? The girl said. I couldn't see her anymore, just the shadows of her legs on the ground outside the stall. Even then, I was trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do if the woman had, as I suspected, full-on overdosed on something and died. I couldn't very well have the girl babysit her mother's corpse while I went and found help. Shit, I muttered under my breath. I looked the woman over. She had the same sort of mousy brown hair that I did, though she'd gone through the trouble of managing it into a proper middle-aged woman's haircut. The rest of her looked, not quite like a businesswoman, but that married-to-power feel most political wives shared. I don't know who else would own a skirt that blue cut that high. I asked her if she was okay again, knowing full well she wasn't. Her skin was already pale, gray even, and her neck had been wet towel cold. I placed my fingers as gently around her chin and head as I could and rotated her face to me. Then I screamed. She was me, but slightly different and extremely dead. The right half of her, my, face was gone, almost like it had been scoured away by chemicals. The bone beneath the exposed skin was yellow or black where it wasn't white. The right eye, too, was gone entirely. Not even a scorched piece of it remained. The left eye, what would be her right eye, was still there, though. The same hazel as my own, but gray with death. I tried to back away from this thing, but I couldn't. The stall door had gotten stuck behind me and the sudden shift in our weights slammed it shut. I fell against it as the corpse collapsed against the opposite wall, her legs spreading as the weight of her body slumped her downward and pushed her crotch toward me. I let myself slide to the floor, feeling the wetness on the tiles soaking into my clothes, and tried to bend myself enough to get the top half of my body under the stall door. The body followed after me, sliding faster when I maneuvered my legs to push against the bottom of the toilet. Doing that had knocked the corpse's legs completely out, and now it was slowly falling to its knees over top me. This dead thing that looked like me dropped finally to its knees and then fell forward against the door with a terrible, wet crunch. Some pocket of liquid split open in its face and poured down the door to drip on my neck and shoulder. I screamed clenched my eyes, and crushed myself until I was under the door and out onto the floor of the bathroom. I had just freed myself when a massive, powerful hand grabbed me under my armpits and hauled me to my feet. Then higher. Then still higher. I found the face of that doctor just inches from mine, his filthy glasses almost completely opaque. The eyes behind those lenses were black blobs that could have belonged to a spider. Or a crab. He set me down but didn't let go. 
He held me in place with one hand while another of his dangling limbs flitted into his jacket and pulled out a penlight. He shone it in my eyes, blinding me. I tried to slap his hand away, but there were more arms, somehow, holding me in place. Not doing as well as you'd think, he said, grinning at me and then making an exaggerating pouting face. Oh, that fresh country air is good for the lungs, they say, but you get too much and it can set your head to spinning. The light was bright enough that I was almost blind. It stole the air out of my lungs. I tried to scream anyway, but all I managed to do was cough. Gonna have to get that looked at, he said. Boy, is it bad. (laughs) My arms were up over my head, held in place like a lab animal. There were more lights, it seemed now, dozens of them, all flashing and flickering and foundering my brain. In the shadows of the bathroom beyond, growing deeper, I could see the little girl. She stood still in the darkness, face unreadable, watching me. I broke free of the hands over my head and reached forward blindly, grabbing the first solid thing I could find and pushing. I hit the sink so hard it rattled and managed to toss myself onto the floor. I looked around wildly at the empty bathroom, trying to find the odd doctor, the little girl, hoping I didn't see my own corpse sliding out from beneath one of the stalls. Nothing. It wasn't even the same bathroom. Close, but no cigar. I blinked and touched my face. It was soaking wet, but I could tell it was just water. I turned to see the tap in the sink still running, making a slow, steady pool over the paper towels I dropped over the drain to stop it up. And I had done that. I remembered doing that. My two recent realities fumbled over each other just a second longer, until the one in which I was standing won out and the other began to slowly feel like a dream. A sense of deja vu so profound it made me feel small and cheap flooded up and then receded just as quickly in the aftermath of that existential confrontation. I turned off the sink and grabbed a fresh set of paper towels to dry myself. The bathroom was dark, but only because it was paneled with dark, reclaimed wood and had black-gray tiling. The lighting was excellent, There was no dingy subway bathroom tile, no mint green steel doors. The floor was clean and pretty dry. I was as well. But if I closed my eyes, squinted really, I could almost see that other bathroom falling into place over this one like a transparency. There was a click from one of the stalls at the end of the line, the one I'd found my dead self inside of in that dream. I heard high heels clacking over the floor and turned to the sink, which I unstoppered quickly so I could pretend to be washing my hands. I saw the outline of a young woman in an almost painfully tight dress appear behind me, but thankfully not the ugly blue skirt that other me had been wearing. I caught a glimpse of exposed cleavage and blonde hair falling off her shoulder as the woman bent to wash her hands in the sink beside mine but I didn't stick around to confirm anything else. I turned so she wouldn't be able to see my face and left quickly, nearly tripping over the small crowd gathered in the short, straight hallway that led to the restrooms.
I asked Darcy if I'd been gone long when I got to the table and she laughed at me, raising an eyebrow. Did you even go? She asked. I started to say something, but couldn't pull the words together. I eventually landed on something that technically wasn't a lie. I didn't really like that bathroom, I said. You want to just skip out of here and head back to the motel? Sure, Darcy said. I could tell from her smile that she was trying to let me get away with something. It was the sort of nice she was when I was sick or especially stressed. I wasn't actually getting away with anything, it seemed, except for knowing precisely what it was I was trying to get away with. I stood, probably a touch too fast, but I was eager to get away from other people. The bar crowd didn't seem so bad now that I wasn't inside of it, but the lingering taint of that vision in the bathroom on my mind was a lot to deal with. Almost too much, in fact. I realized I was actually shaking and I pushed my hands down into my pockets so Darcy wouldn't notice. The walk back to the hotel was calm and dark. Too quiet for a long-married couple, the sort of silence that always makes you feel like you're in trouble. I was in trouble, I'll admit, but it wasn't the sort of thing that could be helped. At least, that's what I thought at the time, before the typewriter and the room and everything else. Back when I still thought I was just an insane, aging woman past the prime of her life and ability. If you're worried because we haven't reached the typewriter yet, or that we might never get to it, I've got a confession to make. While the rules remain something of a mystery to me, there is one immutable fact. I can't really stop using the thing. Not stop using in the general sense where I don't walk away from the rotten piece of machinery and use the restroom or sleep or eat. No. I mean I can't stop using it the way a junkie says they can't stop using. Other things happen, but all my actions serve the keys, the ribbon, and the reel. That immutable fact aside, I can steer myself on the river, if not slow the river itself. I can buck side to side like a skier on a downslope. Extending the trip. But the trip must end like all stories must end. Even stories that aren't finished end, as a friend of sorts told me on a night that seems a million years from that first, last quiet evening in gun cotton. Even a single stroke on a canvas is a finished painting if the artist never returns to it. And so my admission is this. I have been stalling. I have been lagging behind in those last wonderful moments of blissful ignorance before all the pain and the heat and the loss, before the death, before the knowledge, before the typewriter. I cannot linger long, but like any ghost, I can linger, and so I will, here in my memory, before the diluvian clash and clatter of these keys score everything away and leave only the fattened pile of pages beside me. I can roam the corridors and halls and see again those most precious moments. I can, even if I don't type out every last moment of it. Think back on the little meals I had with my wife and our small and insignificant conversations. I can remember the soft sounds of her breathing and adjusting herself while we drove, and the feel of her hands on my face. I can remember, too. Even more importantly... Those seconds where our future possibilities seemed to fatten every moment. 
That odd self-deception that made me feel that moving to gun cotton to restart my gears and get riding would be worth it. Be the best move. A feeling I would find that was hardly even mine. But I digress. What you should understand is that I've been delaying, and I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel bad about it at all. Because, darling, we get there, and we get there soon. Darcy and I fucked when we got back to the apartment. Like all good sex, it came out of nowhere. A thunderstorm of touching, petting, and pawing that built and broke and laid me out like old laundry when we were done. Would you like to know the details? Could I be so cruel? What are the rules? We both used the bathroom after getting back to the apartment, me first and then her. I played with the television while she was in the bathroom and found some hetero porn where the two people involved were pretending to be co-workers at a gym. She gave me a weird look when she saw what I was watching and I grinned at her and asked what she thought about that. She said she didn't think much of it at all and then pushed me back against the bed. I stripped her top and her bra off while she sat on top of me. Then I pushed myself out from underneath her and flipped over onto my hands and knees. I told her I wanted her to do to me what the man on the television was doing to that woman. I knew she didn't like that, but I did it anyway, and she did what I asked. Soft at first, gentle, caring, but I made her speed up, use more fingers. I made her hurt me even though she didn't know she was doing it, and every time it felt like I couldn't take more, I made her go harder. And when I was done, we were done. I didn't reciprocate, didn't even ask if she wanted me to. She never raised a fuss about that either, which for some reason pissed me off even more. I was mad, unbelievably mad. I got a shower and knelt on the cheap, hollow-feeling plastic that made up the shower floor. The space on the back of my head where my skin had been shredded away cleaned down to the bone itched. It always itched, even if just a little, which is something I never bothered to mention because I barely notice it anymore. I'm aware of it the way you're aware of your arms, if you still have them. I pushed my face against the diamond plate print of the shower floor as hard as I could, crushing myself up into a ball to do so. More than just the physical action, I could feel something integral to myself, deep inside me, crunching and creaking and compressing until it was smooth and small and useless. A marble of my own self, getting ready to crack away into powder. Like mist falling along the sides of a waterfall, the strands of air dipped down and wrapped themselves around me. Hey, a voice said, and I looked up to see her. Not Darcy, but her. My ghost. Naked and blonde, face done up with faux concern. The true corpse of my future. She reached up and grabbed the shower water dial, turning it to the highest heat, and climbed in with me. Then we were touching each other, inside each other, burning together on the floor. The hot water hurt so bad I thought it was burning my skin away, and maybe it was... The pain of scalding grew so bad that it disappeared, leaving something that felt like pure white light. I thought that maybe that feeling's what you'd see if you kept your eyes on the sun past the point it all went black. The deeper light beyond the dark. 
She kicked the water stopper and the plastic tub began to fill. I let her wrap her fingers around my neck and push me under. Wrapped my own fingers over hers and helped her apply pressure. Then, when I was finally fading away, I tangled my hands in her hair and pulled her mouth to mine and relished in the taste of blood and dirty water. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar lets us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com, or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, you get access to members-only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind-the-story lore episodes. And, at $10 or more, We'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a one-of-a-kind production, and we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded, and without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. I woke in the dark, shivering and coughing, puking up water and trying to find my bearings. I found a towel first, and then stumbled to where the light switch would be on the wall. The light was painfully bright in the bathroom and I was glad to see the only mess I'd made was some water splashed on the ground. God only knew how long I'd been out in the tub. I'm still surprised I didn't drown. I hit the stopper and watched the water drain away, wondering how much of the night, of the day, had been real. Wondering, really, if I were about to turn around and find myself in that insane subway bathroom again. I wrapped myself in a towel and tried to rub my skin warm. Darcy was asleep on the bed, no sign at all of knowing what I'd been up to. I wondered if we'd even had sex. I stepped out on the balcony and looked into the almost endless dark of the West Virginia countryside, wondering if I'd ever be sane again or if I'd ever be able to write something of value. I hoped that maybe something could fill the void in the heart of me little hole that had popped up and let all this shit start pouring out. Lovely night, isn't it? Asked a man on the next balcony over. I turned and saw he was hanging off the wrong side of the railing. His face was on the sky and he looked about as crazy as I thought I was. 
He was maybe 55 or so, mostly bald, and fully dressed in a suit. The dark fabric fluttered in the breeze flowing up the side of the cliff beneath him. Yeah, lovely night, I said, covering myself more with my towel. The man smiled at me and nodded, gazing back over his shoulder at the drop behind him. He looked concerned, pained for a moment, and then the manic glow came over his eyes again. He pulled himself up a little to see into his hotel room and then winked at me. Oh, gotta go, he said. Then he opened his hands and he was gone, falling away into the dark with his arms out wide to his sides. He didn't make a sound until he hit. I watched in stunned disbelief, waiting for the next stupid bit of the vision to play out, but nothing happened. A few minutes later, I heard a sliding door open and people coming outside on the porches beneath me. Then there was some talking, some shouting, and some lights. Then a lot of talking, a lot of shouting, and a lot of lights. It turned out that, after all the mad shit I'd seen that day, this had actually just happened. Coming up on Scars in Time. If there's anything Ash can be sure of, it's that her move to gun cotton has not alleviated her visions. To make matters worse, she's become the unwilling witness to a suicide. Despite her fragile mental state, Ash has to speak with the police and, while doing so, meets the enigmatic and somewhat frightening mayor of gun cotton. Before the day's over, she'll have the key to her new home in hand. I hope you'll join us next time for Chapter 5 of Scars in Time. The Mayor. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC.
Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused, Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Dark Fiction Podcast, due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.